Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on any gadget that you have, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And here's an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get The Known World by Edward P. Jones, or how about Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, or what about Beyond Religion, Ethics for a Whole World by the Dalai Lama, narrated by Martin Sheen. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome back to the program. It's good to be with you. Today's guest is Jamal Joseph. He's the author of a new memoir called Panther Baby. It's due out from Algonquin in February. The uh, the actual pub date, February 7th, 2012. And Jamal is an amazing guy. He's lived an unbelievable life. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from him. Uh, for those of you who don't know anything about him, he came of age in the Black Panther movement as a teenager He was one of the Panther 21, which was uh, one of the more emblematic court cases of the 60s. And he wound up spending time in prison as a young man, uh, you know, as a young boy, really. Uh, I think he was 16 and he was at Rikers Island. And then he also spent time, uh, you know, in Leavenworth Federal Prison and wound up getting uh, multiple college degrees while he was there. And, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the intervening years, he's gone on to completely rebuild his life and do a, a ton of amazing work. Uh, he's been nominated for an Academy Award, and uh, he's now a professor at Columbia, and he's the chair of the School of the Arts Film Division there. So he's written a memoir about his experiences. He and I are going to talk about all of that in just a moment. And, uh, you know, having said that and thinking about him and what he's been through and how he's responded, uh, you know, to adversity in his life and the energy that he projects now, you know, a person like that can put things in perspective. 
And it makes me think about how much I can obsess about stuff that doesn't matter very much and how my mind can take over and my thoughts can run away with me. So, you know, earlier today, just to give you an example, I'm online and I think I was on Facebook and I'm looking at my wall and I see this link to this charity thing uh, that uh, I think 826 is doing. So like a McSweeney's Dave Eggers 826 thing where you bid on something and if you give the highest bid, you get to have lunch with Spike Jones, the uh, the film director. And so I'm sitting there looking at it and, and like, you know, one thought that I had was that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to win, you know, which is sort of a terrible thought, but it did cross my mind. I was like, I'm, I'm probably not going to get to have lunch with Spike Jones. And then I started thinking, you know, would I even want it? You know, if I did have the money, would I want to have lunch with Spike Jones? Excuse me. And so then I start thinking about Spike Jones and how potentially uncomfortable it could be for him, you know, sitting around waiting to find out who you've got to have lunch with. And, you know, and like imagining like, you know, what if some total freak wins this thing? You know, then you got to have like a two hour lunch with this person. And then, uh, then I start thinking about the logistics of it. You know, how does this work? If the winner is from like Mississippi and Spike is in like New York, you know, how do they have lunch? You know, does he fly to them? Do they fly to him? And is it chaperoned? You know, do you have a moderator? Like does Dave Eggers kind of sit there as a buffer? Or, uh, you know, is it just more casual than that? Is it just like, you know, you kind of exchange emails, like Spike emails the guy and says, hey, like, let's make a plan. And then you, you get a reservation and you go to lunch. And, uh, you know, and then, and then I started to think about, like, what if the person who wins is no good in conversation? Or what if Spike is no good in conversation? And, you know, you're the winner and you bid like $25,000 to win this thing and you've flown to New York and then you get there and you're at this restaurant and like Spike has nothing to say or he's, you know, just not in a good mood or he's having an off day or something. So it just seems like it could potentially be awkward. And, uh, you know, I probably sat there thinking about this for like 10 minutes, maybe 15. And this is something that I do and I recognize that it's absurd how I can get lost in my own head like this. And of course it misses the real point, which is the charity itself, you know, the cause and the reason why the lunch is even a possibility in the first place. So, you know, I don't know, that's it. I get caught up at the surface level and, uh, to kind of continue along those lines, uh, you know, with regard to obsessing over stupid bullshit, uh, I want to talk a little bit about email too, and an email experience that I had recently. And, you know, I don't know, uh, if you have, uh, similar feelings on this issue, but email for me can be at times extremely stressful, uh, and a little confusing and, uh, you know, not always, and maybe not even often, but a few times a year, uh, it can get this way. And I think it's because there's no tonal register, you know, you're trying to maybe maintain some sort of decorum and you're trying to make sure that your message is properly stated and, is, and that it's being received as it was intended to be received and so on. So the other day I have an email exchange with a journalist who's also a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate it cause we're not like best buddies or anything, but we're definitely friendly and we see each other around town at, at uh, book related events from time to time. And it's always nice. It's always cordial. And, uh, we keep saying, you know, Hey, we should hang out sometime or something, get a drink. And so I get an email from this journalist and she says a few words about an interview that I did. Uh, I guess she had read the interview that I did over at HTML giant, uh, about the podcast. And, you know, she says, Oh, I read the interview, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the email, she says, how are things? And so I respond and I say, Oh yeah, the interview. Great. Thanks for reading. And then I say, things are good. My daughter's walking. She's talking. You know, I can't believe how big she's gotten just like normal stuff, normal, like dad stuff. 
And then I say, uh, you know, at the end of the email, I say, we should get coffee. And, uh, and then I add to that, uh, you know, something along the lines of, you know, and, and, I, and just so you know, I, you know, I'm not going to pitch you stuff. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm just, I'm just, you know, that's not why I'm asking you to, to go get a coffee. I'm just trying to be friendly. So I'm getting analytical in an effort to make sure that I'm 100% clear. And I think what might have gotten me thinking along these lines, at least most recently, was the conversation that I had with Elisa Chappelle uh, on a previous episode of this show. And uh, for those of you, uh, you know, who don't recall, you know, Elisa, in addition to being a fiction writer, is, you know, also writes the hot type column for Vanity Fair magazine. So she's a prominent book columnist. And I remember during our conversation, I asked her about, you know, what's it like to have all these writers trying to get you to write about their books? And she said something to the effect of, you never know exactly why people are being nice to you when you're in that situation. And that hit home with me. And, you know, I just remember thinking, God, that's right. And I don't want to be like that. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I know that might not be how the world works or actually it is how the world works, but I just don't want it to be that way. You know, I don't want the world to work that way. I don't want to work that way. I don't want to be opportunistic or slick like that where, you know, I'm being friendly to someone with the idea in the back of my head of, you know, what can I get out of this? You know what I'm saying? I don't like that. And so I'm trying to say this, you know, not in so many words to this journalist friend of mine, uh, where I'm like, Hey, let's get a coffee. But just so you know, I'm not going to ask, you know, I'm not asking you to go get coffee so that I can try to get you to write about something. Uh, I'm just trying to be nice. And then, uh, you know, I add like, you know, in parentheses, if you do want to write about something, that's great. But if, if not, that's fine too. It doesn't matter to me. That's the point. So I was trying to be honest and, uh, you know, maybe that's like an, you know, too much idealism or too tedious or whatever, but I sent the email and, you know, it was like, it wasn't too long. It was like two short paragraphs, maybe three, just like very quick. And, uh, I sent it and I didn't get a response for like 36 hours. And, uh, you know, at, at about hour five, I started worrying a little bit like, you know, that's weird. You know, I got an email, I fired right back. I didn't hear back. And so like, it was like, okay, well, she's just probably busy. So, uh, nothing the rest of the night. And then I wake up in the morning, nothing. And it starts to stress me out like increasingly. And it, to be honest, it was making me a little frustrated, excuse me. And so it's not that I thought that I did anything wrong. You know, it wasn't that I was like, Oh God, I, I did something wrong. It was more like I was trying to do something right. And maybe I said it wrong. And so now it seems like a wrong thing, even though I was trying to do the right thing. Like that's particularly frustrating when you're trying to do something good and then you fuck it up and it winds up being something bad. You know what I'm saying? So I go through this whole day and I don't hear back. And, uh, you know, eventually I'm just like, you know, screw it. I got to try to make sure that there's not a problem here. So I decide that I'm going to send another email explaining (laughs) my over explaining. And so I write up another email and I I ask my wife about it as I will often do. Um, You know, I want to like bounce it off of her and see if you know what she thinks. And, you know, she's, she's really, uh, she's really great. She's kind of dry and she never really gives me the confirmation that I want. You know, I'm like, you know, sweetie, here's the situation. Uh, and then I wrote this response or this, you know, this extra response to try to clarify, do you think it's a good idea? And she's like, well, (laughs) it's kind of like John Favreau in swingers when he leaves that long answering machine message. But, you know, if you think it's necessary, go ahead. That's about as much as she would give me. And, uh, of course I'm like, you know, that doesn't help me much, but, uh, you know, I'm going to do it. Fuck it. So 
you know, I write this email. It basically says, I realize this is absurd and that I'm over-clarifying what has probably been over-clarified, but I just wanted to make sure uh, that the previous email wasn't poorly received, blah, 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 blah. And so, like, within an hour, uh, you know, the journalist friend emails me back, and she's totally nice and probably, like, sort of laughing at me. And she's like, you know, no problem, dude. It's totally cool. I appreciate it. I've just been super busy. And, uh, you know, mixing a little work and coffee is no big deal either. It's all good. So that's the story. And uh, <laughs> it was like, you know, it was a stressful 36 hours. I can't, I can't, you know, underscore that enough. It was tough. And I don't know why, if I'm just crazy or what, but the point, I guess, is that I can spend an incredible amount of human energy contemplating this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, in this particular instance, I'm wondering, like, what category does it fall under? Is that me engaging in surface level thinking, like superfluous, neurotic, uh, needless bullshit? Or was I thinking deeply and, and possibly even in a, in a good way? You know, I don't know. Um, but it makes me think about like effective human beings, people who are able to actualize things and operate, you know, effectively in, in like, say, the business world, you know, in the real world or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you, you know, I have to believe that they probably don't spend time on things like this. You know, like, can you imagine Bill Gates worrying about something like this? Can you see Warren Buffett sending an overly analytical email to a buddy? I don't know, but this is how I'm wired. And, uh, you know, I want to be good. I want to do good. And, uh, you know, I, I also do want to be effective, but not at the expense of being good. And, uh, I think I think too much about what it means to be good sometimes when maybe I, you know, should spend some time thinking about what it means to be effective or what it means to be good at being effective, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, I think maybe a good place to start is just your childhood. And, and can you talk a little bit about that? Because that alone to me, uh, you know, is worth several books. And uh, I just love to, to have, you know, make sure listeners have some context in terms of like, you know, where you come from and, and how you were raised and stuff. 
Yes, I was conceived in Cuba. My mother and father are Cuban, and I was conceived, uh, uh, but 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 born in New York um, and raised in a foster home. And so my mom, who um, had come from a, a an educated family, and my grandfather was uh, was an engineer, and uh, she had a great education, and actually. Uh, met my met my dad while she was uh, in grad school uh, at the University of Havana. Uh, he was a revolutionary and member of the Communist Party. So she came home. Uh, she was 21 and a half, 22, and announced that she was pregnant, but that she was brokenhearted because uh, she had broken up with the guy. And my grandparents found out that he was uh, a communist and promptly put her on the first thing smoking to New York City. <laughs> Mom, who was beautiful woman who, who spoke uh, fluent French as well as Spanish uh, and had been a debutante and, and uh, was a grad student. Uh, she was all of that in Cuba, but in New York she was a, a black woman who couldn't speak English. Wow. So yeah. she, uh, she put me um, in, in foster care. And the, 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 the family who became my adopted grandparents, uh, because that's, they, they were old enough when they took me in, they were already in their late 60s and early 70s when they took me in, were these amazing people whose parents and older siblings had been slaves, literally had been slaves. And so they understood a South where black people could not look white people directly in the eye, where if a white person was coming down a narrow sidewalk, that as a black person, you better step into the curb to allow them to pass, where they had seen friends and relatives be lynched, where they came to New York and got involved in um, Marcus Zagari's, uh Back to Africa movement. Uh, my grandmother was a, uh, was a woman of deep Christian faith and was involved in the church, but it was the black church um, that was active, uh, that was active during, uh, you know, we think of the civil rights movement, but if you think about what was going on with the labor movement and black folks in World War II and, and trying to desegregate the military. The black church was also, you know, involved in those struggles. So I was raised with a real sense of history and perspective for what had been happening in terms of African-American history and what had been happening in struggle at first. In fact, I first heard the term, you know, African in my household, and this was a time when, when growing up when, when to be called African was a diss. When you saw Tarzan movies and the Africans and some of them, you know, a lot of them just played by, by white actors and body paint um, would run and duck and hide. And, you know, when, when, when danger happened and Tarzan would swing, would swing in and, and would speak to the, the chimpanzees and the lions and the tigers. Uh, and, and my adopted grandfather would watch TV and he would see this and he would go like, what the F is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the F is that? Tell me how in the hell a little cracker that fell out of airplane can come in and run the jungle and the Africans are looking like they're crazy. <laughs> so he had outrage about it. He had a sense of humor about it. He had real pride about it. And so hearing these things, you know, kind of growing up at his feet and hearing these stories gave me a real sense of history and, and who I was. My, um, my mother Gladys uh, would come check on me. I would see her once or twice a month. Uh, she went to school. She got uh, married here, had some other kids, and her dream was to 
have all of her kids under one roof. She got a graduate degree, became a licensed pharmacist, and was about to buy a house and open a business, and then tragically passed when I was nine years old during, during childbirth. So we weren't reunited, um, but I continued to have this wonderful uh, experiences growing up with, um, with, uh, with, with Mother Baltimore and with, with Grandpa Baltimore. Um, he died when I was 13 years old. By that time, I had become a member of the NAACP Youth Council and was involved in collecting books and, and food and, and marches that we had here in New York and supporting the Freedom Riders. And then when Dr. King was killed, um, a lot of us, young students, older students, young people, got radicalized overnight. Um, there, uh, right in the foreground, were people like Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown that were saying this thing that was really kind of cool, this black power thing, this black militant thing. And as people who were going to church, as young people who were going to church involved in the NAACP, we couldn't really discuss it in the meetings. Uh, we couldn't really discuss it at home. But these brothers and sisters were so cool. And they did something that that is really respected in the black community. They knew how to diss and play the dozens really well. <laughs> so it was having those verbal skills. You know, growing up in the schoolyard, you know, being able to do the to do the insults, you know, being able to say, Man, you know, your family's so poor you can't even pay attention, you know. <laughs> or 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 the or the roaches in your house are so mean the mice carry switchblades, you know. <laughs> But then to see someone like H. Rap Brown come and just really diss the whole system. And, uh, you know, Rap Brown got arrested one time in Louisiana for carrying a rifle. A lot of black militants talked about arming themselves for self-defense and the right to bear arms. And I remember seeing Rap coming out on bail for carrying a rifle, and it was a news conference. And Rap looked at those reporters and he said, if you thought my rifle was bad, wait till you see my atom bomb. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, you look at this and you go, wow, that brother is bad, the way he's just, like, playing the dozens on the system. So when Dr. King was killed, um, I was 15 years old, and I decided I was going to be a black militant. And it was a subjective decision. It was just that. But, but I understood that nonviolence did, wasn't working. Um, uh, I understood, and a lot of us understood, that if they could kill the Prince of Peace, a man who was talking about nonviolent revolution, then we couldn't turn the cheek anymore. So I went on this quest to find the Black Panther Party. Well, first it was to find any black militant organization. I came, I came to school the next day. I had gone down to Harlem and participated, you know, on the fringes of the riot, threw a brick here, got chased by the cops there, and then came back and announced, uh, without fully understanding what the word is, that I was going to be a black militant. So, okay, so you were, I mean, how old were you at this point? You were 15? I was 15 years old. Okay, and you were a pretty, I mean, that's, in some ways, there's like, there's some precocity to that. Like, I hear about, like, your level of activism at that age and engagement, like being on the youth council with the NAACP and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's an element of uh, precociousness to even having that kind of awareness. A lot of teenagers wouldn't, wouldn't be engaged at that level. And then, um, you know, I'm also uh, interested to hear you talk about uh, the role that anger played in your decision. I mean, obviously there's anger over the death of Dr. King, but, you know, also the role of anger in, uh, you know, in social change, any, any social change and, you know, how you feel about that, how you felt about it maybe then, and, and then how you feel about it now looking back. 
Well, what the civil rights movement did and being involved, you know, early again, uh, you know, having grandparents where where this where this was discussed all the time, you know, uh, you know, Black History, what was going on, uh, uh, gave me a sense of duty in in in, in the sense that that we should be doing something to make it, you know, to make a change. Um, but there wasn't the deep ideology that I got later once I became a Panther, but I didn't have that when I first joined the Panthers. The, the, the anger is a key thing because, and, and this exists today, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of kids of color grow up mad. You grow up angry. Um, you're seeing your, your, you know, if your father is around, you're seeing in a lot of cases, a struggling man and a broken man. Uh, you're seeing the images of power and success as white males, uh, as business people and as politicians and as, and as white cops. Um, you got slapped around by cops. This happened, um, you know, as standard operational procedure when I was a kid. If we, if we climbed the fence to the park after it was closed and the cops caught us, they were going to beat our butts. They were going to take you know, take their black jacks and, uh, you know, whack us across the legs and across our butts and smack us in the head and then tell us to get out the park. And we would run and we would tease our friend who cried because he was crying. But there was that anger. And, 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 um, and how, we, how we dealt with that anger is that we would fight each other. Uh, if there weren't organized gangs, the kids from one block would fight another block, or the kids from the projects would fight the kids from the avenue. And that was the rite of passage, like who was the baddest dude in the neighborhood and who stood up more. So when Dr. King got killed, we, we, we dared to focus that anger or to express our anger uh, against white America. And it became a black-white issue. And so a lot of young people started to say, you know, uh, you know, Whitey is oppressing us, uh, black power, kill Whitey, fight Whitey. And to us, that was like a step in the right direction in terms of being a militant and being a movement. And for me, as someone who maybe was a little bit more involved than my peers and was a little more concerned, um, I wanted to get out and do something about it. And so it began this journey looking at different organizations, and it was completely subjective. Like, for example... I just have to tell you this thing because it's funny. I came to school after, you know, after Dr. King was killed and I was down there participating in the riots and announced to all of my friends at, at the lunch table at school that I was going to be a black militant. And one of my <laughs> friends looked at me, uh, a friend of mine, a, 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 a white kid named Paul, and he was like, I didn't even have the name Jamal then. He was like, Eddie, I, I don't know if you can say you're going to be a black militant like it's a career choice like it's a doctor <laughs> or a lawyer no it's i mean it almost sounds like you were out like applying it's like you're applying to schools or something you were looking for that's, the... that's exactly right and then to prove to paul as much as to anybody i now had to find a black militant organization and that was really like looking for schools and and again i would look at stuff like oh the black muslims and i would go like ah no i don't like bow ties plus i like bacon every now and then <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, you got. I mean, you got to consider what's important. I mean, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah, and then it was like SNCC, you know, which which had been the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and now it was the Student National Coordinating Committee. But I knew my friends, you know, they'd have too much fun, but it would be like snot and snake and so. <laughs> so uh, and you then, know, so so tell me about uh, like you know the actual entry into the Black Panthers, like showing up well, what, that process. The, the, well, first, it, it was seeing the Panthers on television. 
watching my grandmother's beat up black and white television. And the Panthers, uh, there was footage of the Panthers storming the state capitol in Sacramento with guns to protest the change in, in the gun control laws in California because the Panthers had uh, come to national attention because they had patrols where they were patrolling the streets of, um, of Oakland, California with, with guns and law books. And it was legal to carry a gun if, it, if you didn't have a record and if it wasn't concealed. And they would stand and observe the police and read from the law books um, the, uh, to the person being arrested their rights and follow them to the precinct, bail them out. And if they didn't have enough money to bail them out, they had some volunteer lawyers that would help. And this kind of organized resistance fired the community up. So the Panthers grew in California very rapidly and nationally grew. But I saw this and... Um, um, and, and, oh, and the news reporter was saying, the ultra-militant Black Panther Party. And he said a Panther vehicle was pulled over and they had shotguns and weapons and communist literature in the trunk. And I looked, and I'm riveted on the TV, and I was like, they're crazy. They got black leather coats. They got guns. I said, they're communists. They stormed the state capitol, and all of the, you know, the politicians were, like, ducking under their desks. And I was like, they're crazy. I want to join that one. <laughs> yeah, you're 15 years old. You're like, this looks like fun, right? <laughs> this looks like fun. And so a couple of older guys got a flyer, and we all headed out to Brooklyn, where the first Panther office was. This was even before the Harlem office opened to the secret headquarters of the Black Panther Party. Um, and then on the way out, um, you know, it, it, the train ride was about an hour and a half. Um, they, they gave me a name because they told me that Eddie wasn't black enough. Um, and so I got the name Jamal on the train, and I also got a little prep about what it was like to be a Panther. Uh, one of my older friends leaned over, he says, you know, the Panthers are like the mafia. Once you join, there's no getting out. And I'm the skinny 15, 15-year-old kid in the middle, the youngest one, and I, you know, I can't be a punk in front of my boys. I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, right. So the guy says, hey, man, you know, you know you got to kill a white dude to be a panther, right? And inside my stomach is, like, churning. I'm like, kill somebody, but I can't be a punk. I was like, I don't care. Right. And the other guy said, no, man, you don't, you, you don't have to kill a white dude. I relax. He said, you got to kill a white cop. Oh, God. <laughs> and you got to bring in his badge and his gun. And by the time we got off the train, my knees were shaking, my mouth was dry. I wanted to turn around, but I could not be the first because this was about being a man. And we get into the Panther office and, and we're seated in the back. And the, uh, uh, the person running the meeting is explaining the Panther 10-point program. And if you look at the 10-point program today, um, uh, 45 years old could have been written sadly last year because a lot of the things still exist in the community. But it talks about you know freedom to determine the, uh, to determine the destiny of our own community, employment, housing, and end to police brutality. Nothing about killing cops or white people. But I'm not hearing this. I'm going to prove that I'm a man. So I jump up in the middle of the meeting. I think the brother was talking about education. And I said, choose me, brother, on me. I'll kill a white dude right now. <laughs> the whole meeting stops. <laughs> it's like the needle went off the record play, you know. Play. It really did. Everybody's <laughs> looking at me. But I think they're looking at me like, yeah, okay, we're going to send him on his revolutionary suicide mission. And 
I'm standing, and he beckons me up front, and he reaches down into the bottom drawer of this desk, and my heart is pounding, thinking he's going to give me my gun. I'm expecting this big gun with a panther emblem on it. <laughs> he hands me a stack of books. Wretched uh, of the Earth by Fanon, Solar Nights by Eldridge Cleaver, the famous little red book, quotations for Chairman Mao. I'm thinking this must be a trick, right? Because my friends had prepped me, right? I'm supposed to be killing a white dude now. And I said, excuse me, brother. Uh, you said you were going to arm me. And he said, well, excuse me, young brother, I just did. Hmm. Um, and then he also disabused me of the notion that this was about hating white people, killing white people. Um, and he just asked me, he said, that the cops that are brutalizing people were, were black and the people getting brutalized were white. If the store owners were black and the people you know, being ripped off were white, if the politicians and everybody in control were black and everybody uh, being exploited and oppressed and living in slums and suffering were white, would that make things correct? And I said, no, sir, it seems like it would still be wrong. He said, that's right, young brother, this is class struggle, not just race struggle. Study those books so you understand what the revolution is about. Um, that and, was my first day. And in who the is this guy? Who is this guy that that was talking to you? Do you remember? Or is he, it... Oh yeah, clearly his his name was uh, was was his name was uh, was Edme Lieutenant Edme, and he was the information lieutenant. Um, brilliant young guy. They all seem older. Everybody in the office seemed older, like these older, really cool. Black Panther brothers and sisters, but they were young. I was 15, so everybody seemed older then, but, but they were 18, 19, 20, 21. I think the average age of of uh, someone in the Black Panther Party is, was like 19 or 20. Yeah. And um, that was the face of the movement. That was the face of the movement in the 60s in terms of the anti-war movement and, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Black Power movement and the women's rights movement. It was young people um, in those meetings in those programs, at those rallies, taking it to the streets. Uh, it was the youth driving the revolution. Well, okay, and so take me now from that moment where you, uh, where you sign on or you join to uh, the Panther 21 and, and that experience and winding up in Rikers, uh, you know, as, as a young kid. Well, the, the, the training in the Panthers, and especially the... Um, the information training, the ideological training was, was serious. We read, we discussed books, we discussed uh, the New York Times. You know, you had to be able to even break that down, what's really being said in this in this editorial. You had to memorize uh, the 10-point program, um, the, the rules of discipline. Uh, a couple of days a week there was, you know, you, there was the physical training. You go out and you do your calisthenics and you learn martial arts and, we all had, you were assigned to a section, and your sergeant or lieutenant was called a section leader. And my section leader was a guy named Yewa, uh, who's a Vietnam veteran, about 26, 27 years old, real charismatic guy. Made sure that I learned on myself. Everybody kept an eye on me because I was young, right? I was like the mascot. So everybody, you know, was, was, uh, was, was making sure that I knew my stuff and um, you know, he even taught me the right way to, to, to hit on a panther girl. You know, he called me over. He was like, Jamal, it's like, you, you're a panther now. You, you can't go to this girl and go like, hey, what's happened, baby? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a, funny, like, there's a funny line in the book about, I forget, I, I might be uh, misremembering, but it was like revolutionary sex or something like that. Where Yeah, that's right. Revolutionary lovemaking where you say, 
uh, when you have an orgasm, when you say power to the people instead of give it to me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that can't be you real. To, that was real. You had to be revolutionary through and through. I so, was going to say. <laughs> but, but um, and then as I started, the more I learned, the more I wanted to be involved because then it went from, uh, you know, from just, you know, for, for something that was like really cool and a fad to something I really believed in and learning, and then I started organizing, and I became the subsection leader, and I was became in charge of the high school cadres, and I was gone all the time. Because the other thing is that you did a lot of community work. There was the breakfast programs. There were um, a liberation school where we worked with, uh, with, with kids after school, and during the weekend when there was a big school strike, we went and popped the locks on some of the schools and had classes. You worked with buildings where they were having wind strikes. There was community patrols where you escorted people home. There was a health clinic. So you worked. It was community service, community service, political education. You were out handing out flyers and papers. And my grandmother didn't know why I was going so much or what I was up to. What are you doing? I'm going to a meeting. What do you do? I didn't say Black Panther Party because I knew better. And one day... Um, and of course, I didn't have time to make up my bed and straighten my room. And so one day, uh, she went in to straighten my room, and uh, in between my mattress and my box spring, found all of this Black Panther material. And I came home, and she had it stacked up. And then next to that stack of, and, and, and if you look at the Panther Papers, this is Emory Douglas, his art where he would make cops look like pigs and have school children carrying textbooks and AK-47s and. <laughs> Just what you want you your know. grandmother to find. You know? Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> so my grandmother had this, you know, I don't know how she didn't have a heart attack, but she, she had this stuff stacked, and then next to that she had the Bible, and next to that she had a, a belt. And when I came and it and that looked like a mafia altar. And when I came in, <laughs> Grandma pointed to this stuff, and she said, boy, what is this? I said, Grandma, you, you were in my room? She said, don't even start. She said, because I don't know whether to bless you with this belt or kill you with this Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you say? I tried to explain that all the good things that we, that we had done, but she had looked at the material, but not just the material. The Panthers were on the news almost every night. Panthers were being arrested. There were shootouts. There were, you know, there was this cry uh, from the media and, and, and white America against this organization that they feared called the Black Panther Party. And she said, I could not go back. She, she forbid me from going back. So uh, being the good, obedient grandson that I was, I went back. <laughs> but it was, to let, <laughs> it was to let everybody know that this would be my last time because my grandmother was an Uncle Tom and brainwashed. And Afeni Shakur, we were standing in front of the office, and Afeni was standing there with a few of the other Panther officers and said, and almost took my head off. She said, never, ever, ever speak about your grandmother like this. She said, because she is a good woman, she has raised you, and she's trying to love you and protect you the best way she knows how. We were very clear in the Panthers about what was going on in the community and that, and that if people weren't politically conscious, that didn't, that didn't mean that they weren't conscious people who loved the community and who wanted to do good things for the community. Um, and then my section leader agreed to come to the house to try to talk to her. I didn't think it would do much good, but I said yes. And, you know, took a lot of convincing, and he came, and 
Yewa came and sat down, and he was charming. He had a tie on. I didn't know we could wear ties. <laughs> you know, he had the leather jacket, but took off all the uh, all the panther buttons. And he sat down and leather he, sport coat. Is that what it was? He kinda... Yeah, it was like the you know we <laughs> it was official. Yeah, it's, it, and he sat down and he convinced my grandmother. He said, "Mother Baltimore," and right away he got some points because um, Jesse May Baltimore was an elder in the church and she was properly addressed as mother. She said, if you say Jamal, excuse me, if you say Eddie, can't come back to the Panther office. He says, ma'am, we have to respect that because you are his grandmother and you're my elder. If you tell me to do something, I have to listen because you're my elder. He said, but ma'am, I know he's giving you a hard time. And if it's okay, even if he can't come back, I'm going to keep an eye on him. He said, ma'am, and I'm a little confused now. Where is this going? You're supposed to come in and do the Panther Jedi mind trick. And right. He said, ma'am, if you say his curfew is 9 o'clock and he's not in the house by 845, I will take off this garrison belt buckle and I'll beat his butt. He said, ma'am, if you want him to, to bring you a 90 on the next, next uh, 85 on the next math exam, and he doesn't bring you a 90, I will take these size 13 combat boots and I'll give him a kick in the butt. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why did you even come? <laughs> I'm grounded until I'm 50 now. But Grandma looked at him, and she said, you know, I really didn't know what to expect when you came. She said, but you seem like a nice man. And I will tell you, it is so hard raising a boy alone. He doesn't have a father or a grandfather. She said, so if you will make sure that he does what he's supposed to do, and that he obeys my rules, and you'll keep an eye on him, I'll let him go back. And so I, it worked. I was back. Wow. Well, about three or four weeks later, a team of police officers kicked in the door to my grandmother's house at 4 o'clock in the morning um, in a bulletproof vest and shotguns and rifles, and they arrested me as part of the Panther 21 case. You know, I was uh, taken out in, in handcuffs and taken to a courtroom where I was arraigned and charged with um, conspiracy charges and weapons possession charges and found out that I was facing something like 367 years. And bail was set at $100,000, which in 1969 for, um, uh, you know, for, for a poor family is like a million or $10 million. Sure. And thrown into Rikers Island, uh, we were, we were, um, and, and that was the Panther 21 case. There were indictments for 21 Panthers and, Anyone in leadership position in New York, and although I was 15, and I was, but I was head of the high school cadres and had become, um, had become a young officer. And we were trying to. At first, we laughed. We thought this, you know, this is incredible harassment, and we thought we'd be out in a couple of weeks. And then they kept piling on charges, and the case got started looking more and more serious. And the lawyers, under the rules of discovery found out that it was a conspiracy case that was uh, that was made primarily based on the testimony of two cops who had been placed in, in deep undercover assignments in, in the Panther Party. There was a special division of the police department called the Boss Unit, the Bureau of Special Services. And one of the guys uh, who was uh, uh, who was an undercover cop was a was a guy named Gene Roberts, who had been with Malcolm X from the time he was in the Nation of Islam until he was killed. Um, 
and so he was with Malcolm in, in the organization of African-American unity, was on stage the day that Malcolm was shot. And in fact, if you go online, there's a picture of Malcolm getting mouth-to-mouth resuscitation moments after he was shot. His shirt is covered in blood, and one of his bodyguards is giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And that man was Gene Roberts, who was a cop at that time. Malcolm X drew his last breath from an undercover cop. Hmm. But we didn't know this, and so he came with these credentials that had been, been right next to Malcolm X after he was killed and came in and actually became a Panther officer, became a lieutenant. And the other person who was, the, uh, who was a boss operative and a deep undercover cop was my mentor, Yewa. Wow. So how did that, uh, but how did that, you know, that must have been, you must have been pretty thunderstruck by that, the fact that this guy. I was crushed. I was as crushed as, as, as you can imagine. Uh, I'm sitting in prison getting this information, and my world turns upside down, but you don't really process it in the same way when you're 15 years old, and especially if you're part of a movement, if you're a young warrior. You know, I was felt betrayed. I felt angry. And then I started feeling like I should have known. And then I started feeling like I, should, I you know, I'll get him back. You know, how how could he do this? It wasn't it wasn't until years later, um, after I became a father, that I started realizing what a betrayal it was and how wounded I was by that. As as someone who joined the Panther Party uh, in search of manhood and in search of a father figure, being betrayed in that way, and and the damage that I did. But what it did to me at 15 and 16. Uh, because by now I was 16 years old, was it, 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 it created a tough little shell around me, and I wanted to uh, just, just fight and die for the struggle. And so I came out uh, uh, on bail in the Panther 21 case after 10 months and even more fired up and just more determined to do the work of the Black Panther Party and to, uh, and to do all I could to, to promote revolution in America. Okay, but how did that mean? Okay, the, the obvious question then is, like, you know, obviously this would... Uh, affect your ability to trust, you know, like if you're working with other people within the Black Panther Party at that point, knowing that you've been betrayed by your former mentor, like, like how did you relate to other members at that point? Were you more wary? I mean, yeah, I was much more wary of of um, of new of new of new members coming in, and of of uh, people who would just show up. There are other people, the younger members who. I would see come in from high school. You would see people from the community who finally became Panthers. Um, um, we had a close bond, and that was that was easier. But I remember standing up in a meeting, and and um, of of uh, it was called a central staff meeting, and that's when leadership from the East Coast would come together once a month. So from from New Haven all the way down to Baltimore, people would come. And I remember saying we should have a moratorium on, on new members because this is not the same Black Panther Party that, that a lot of us joined, certainly not the same one that I joined two years ago. Uh, you turn on the news now and every day a Panther is being killed or going to jail. But anybody who walks in the door now must have a death wish, be crazy, or be a pig, and I don't think we need any of those people. I remember there was some discussion and people kind of voted that down, but, yeah, that's... That's how I felt. I, I felt um, it was hard to trust, um, uh, but mainly it was how I pushed myself. Um, we all got very little sleep, and, and um, as someone who then came out and was a, became the youngest spokesperson in New York, because I was one of the Panther 21, and my responsibilities were to try to raise 
was to try to raise bail money for the Panthers remaining in prison and also to try to do more organization. I just pushed myself convinced that, um, that I wouldn't live to see my 21st birthday. So I wanted to do as much work as I could to organize people and to stir things up, you know, uh, against this, you know, against this oppressive system as I could. So it was really that being driven in that way. That, and and that then what, what, what was the, uh, you know, one of the things that you talk about in, in the book and that, that I think doesn't, uh, you know, might not come immediately to mind is the physical toll that uh, living like this takes. Like you mentioned that you weren't sleeping a lot, but I mean, physically, how did you feel? I mean, you, here you are basically resigned to the fact that you're not going to see your 21st birthday um, and you could be arrested or there could be, um, you, you know, uh, undercover cops in your midst and you don't know who to trust. I mean, how did you, how were you physically? I mean, the stress of it must oh, have been pretty intense. You know, I, you were always sleep deprived and, and this was all of us. This wasn't just me. Every, um, and, 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 and another difference I want to point out is when I came out of prison, when you joined the Panthers, it was you would go to the office a few days a week and people would be in school and people had jobs and uh, some people who might be unemployed, you know, might be there more. But you would go, you expected to go like two times a week and then on Saturdays. When I came out, the Panthers were living, it was communal living. There were apartments, there were houses. Being a Panther was a 24-7 proposition. You would go home to see your family as opposed to leave your family and see the Panthers. And I think the average amount of sleep for anybody was, was four, maybe five hours a night if you were lucky. Um, people were being arrested and being shot every day. Every day you get a report um, that someone had been, that someone had, that an office had been raided or someone had been killed. And every day in New York, uh, you would expect that call that somebody had been arrested for selling newspapers or a car had been pulled over or the police tried to kick in the door of the apartment. So it was a real, it wasn't just that you know people looked at what had happened to Fred Hampton, being you know being killed while he slept, or what happened to the Panther 21. There were constant reminders that you were in danger, and that any day could be the day that you would um, that you would be ki- that you would be killed, that you would go to prison um, or be killed. Um, very little food, um, exception of the breakfast program. So if you your, your your one good meal was after you served breakfast, what was left over, you would do that. Uh, very little sleep, high level of stress. And so it was amazing. I had an ulcer when I was 17 years old. It was amazing how many people had uh, had ulcers, had high blood pressure. Um, they, they, uh, they were young women who were having miscarriages, and, and a doctor told us that, that a lot of the young women were having gynecological problems that are associated with women who are much older and have much more stress in their life. Hmm. Uh, so there was... There was um, yeah, there was always that sense. I remember one time coming to see my grandmother and um, being being given leave. You know, people knew I was going to stay with my grandmother for the weekend and falling out and sleeping for about 14 hours and waking up feeling like I was drunk because I, I hadn't had a good night's sleep, so I didn't know what the feeling was like. Yeah. So just to make sure we, we get to this, like, can, can you, can you uh, fast forward a bit and take, uh, you know, take the listeners to where you... Uh, eventually wind up in Leavenworth uh, for the longer um, the longer stint in prison. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they, they, I, I then went back to prison when uh, there was a split in the Black Panther Party, and the the FBI had something 
called the Counterintelligence Program. And what the Counterintelligence Program did was it used informers, uh, they worked in conjunction with, with the police department, not only to get intelligence and to spy on the Black Panther Party, but to plant false information and to bring Panthers up, literally. Weapons were planted or people were giving uh, um, um, uh, 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 rumors, false rumors that created uh, tensions between Panther members. Uh, let, me be, let me give you an example. You'd, we'd be in a meeting and we'd be talking, and then after the meeting, people would say, you know, Brother So-and-so uh, thinks you're getting too much power in the organization um, and that you should be eliminated. And then somebody else would come to them saying, you know, Jamal might be an undercover cop or he might be an informant because isn't it interesting that he got out on bail uh, so quickly on that case? Now there's this aura of suspicion, and they continue to fuel that and to fuel that until it led to... So this built on, you know, you're already exhausted. There's always this, this sense of paranoia, and it created this split uh, within the Black Panther Party uh, known as the East Coast-West Coast split. When that happened, a few of us that were out on bail decided to go underground, not go back to court, to what we thought most certainly would be a conviction and a life sentence. And we started kicking in the doors of drug dens that went home because it was this uh, epidemic of drugs in, in the black community, in the Bronx, in Harlem, and in Brooklyn, and closing the drug dens down, taking the drugs and flushing them down the toilet, or uh, more often flushing them down the sewer so the people in the community could see as we were declaring a war on drugs and declaring that, um, uh, that we would dispense people's justice on anybody that was trying to sell this poison in the black community. So I was arrested coming out of um, one of these dope spots, um, along with a couple of other Panthers, and wound up spending uh, a few years in prison for weapons possession and robbery. Because even when you're robbing a drug dealer, it's on robbery. I came out, and uh, now I'm in my early 20s, and I'm uh, working, I'm going to Brooklyn College, uh, I'm working, driving a cab. I'm doing a little bit of acting, um, a little bit of writing. And then I'm arrested in a case that was known as the Brinks case and eventually convicted. Uh, and this is where um, where people who were part of the Revolutionary Underground were was accused of breaking people out of jail and robbing some armored cars in New York. And there had been some shootouts with some guards and with some cops and um and, and so there was a conspiracy case where people were charged with being part of that network. And I was arrested um, and eventually convicted of hiding out people who were on the run for the FBI. Um, initially, I was charged in the middle of the conspiracy and once again found myself facing life. But the jury acquitted me of all of the major charges and convicted me of hiding out people who were on the run. And I wound up spending uh, close to six years in federal prison and most of that time in, in Leavenworth Federal Prison. Um, and, an, and, and an amazing transformation happened, or realization, evolution, while I was in prison. I earned two college degrees while I was there from the University of Kansas. Um, some guys came up to me in the yard who knew my reputation, um, but knew, known that I had done some theater, and um, pressed me to write something for Black History Month and to do a play. So I, and the way the guys came, this didn't seem quite just like a friendly request. 
you know, there was an old gangster and two of the biggest black guys in the joint that kind of came over and said, yo, young blood, you've been doing them plays, right? Do something for Black History Month. <laughs> I was going to say, this okay. might be the most unusual entry into the world of theater I've ever heard about, you know? <laughs> this is a crazy entry. So I said, okay, this seems like I really have to do this play. And, and this is literally how I became a writer. I went to the prison, prison library, and there was only one black play in the whole theater section. And to be clear, there was only two plays in the theater section, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet and A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. And I came back to, uh, 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 to the guys that told me I had to do this play. And I said, fellas, look, I, we can't do this play. Uh, it's a great play, but it's a lot of women in the play. And they said, no, we do the play. Just, you know, look around the yard and pick out three dudes. We'll put dresses on them. I was like, no, no, let me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the assignment I want. Someone else yeah. can do that. <laughs> Someone else can do that. And I wrote a play, and we started having rehearsals. We had to convince the captain and the warden that it wasn't an escape plot, and they gave us a little space, you know, in, in the office above the gym, a little, a little room above the gym. And into the rehearsal, as I'm rehearsing with some guys, um, came um, came two guys who were the leaders of La Eme, the Mexican Mafia. Now, Leavenworth, like like most maximum security prisons, is segregated because the guys segregate themselves, and they stand in sections of the yard known as courtyards according to what cliques they're part of, and that's usually based on, you know, what racial background you are. So the Latino prisoners... Um, stood together, the white prisoners, the Aryan Brotherhood, they stood together, you know, the black prisoners, and no one goes in anybody else's territory, um, you know, or you can get killed. And beyond that, there's certain gangs that have a reputation for really taking you out. One of them was, 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 was the Mexican clique. They would, you know, um, they left their quarters usually because somebody had a knife stashed and they were getting ready to kill you. So into this rehearsal comes the two leaders uh, of the Mexican clique. And I'm working with my guys, and my guys are trying to be, you know, at first they weren't cooperating with the improv, and they almost fought, and I broke it up, and I tried to get them to center themselves, you know, pretend you're a tree, sway in the breeze. And so, these, <laughs> you know, and they look at me like I'm crazy, but then the guys from the Mexican mafia, who, by the way, had about five or six murders between them since they were in prison, right? Yeah, yeah. So, when you're in prison, you kill someone, you, you know, what do you, if, they, if they give you another 10 or 20 years, the attitude is like, give me the 10 years, I say, you want my license too? <laughs> right, right. These guys came in and we all had the same thought, right? The leaders of the Mexican crew have come, left their court and come over here to our rehearsal space. Who are they here to kill? And all of a sudden, the guys that I'm working with, they're into it, like, okay, Jamal, look, look, I, I, I'm a tree now, I'm a palm tree, I explain <laughs> And Raphael, um, uh, who's one of the leaders, is looking at all of this like something is really pissing him off. And he gets madder and madder. And after about 10 minutes, he jumps up. You know, we're all watching out the corner of our eye. And he points right at me. And he was like, Yo, I say, let me speak to you a minute. And I was like, oh, damn, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> this I knew is the end. it was a bad idea. I knew this somehow violated the convict code. And he pulls me to the side. And he was like, essay. I had to come see what you were doing, and I want to tell you, there's no secrets in the joint, homes. We know what you're up to. And I had to come check it out for myself. And I've been watching you for about 10 minutes, and I'm going to tell you something straight up, Holmes. That guy you're working with, that guy, that effing guy, yo, 
essay, he's not feeling his character. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, this is true. Oh, my God. So I said, well, why don't you jump in? And he jumped in, and he was great. He hadn't done, he hadn't done theater since he was in junior high school. So I rewrote the play. Now it's black and Mexicans. Well, the guys who stood in the white courtyard, you know, the white supremacist guys, they were like, what are the blacks and the Mexicans are doing? This can only be bad news for us. They send their, their baddest soldier up there, right, their toughest guy. Right, six foot three, two hundred and twenty pounds of muscle, fifth degree black belt. His name is Reb, show up for Rebel. Rebel comes up to the rehearsal. All the guys in the white courtyard are waiting. He comes back after about two hours. They gather around him because Reb is a one man wrecking crew. It was like, Reb, you went up there with the blacks and the Mexicans? And Reb said, Yep. They said, Well, what's going on, Reb? They said, They're doing a play. They said, Well, what'd you do about it, Reb? Reb said, Well, they give me a part. <laughs> It turns out he can sing, you know. Who, who... Yeah, he was. <laughs> we became the. We they had to give us our own courtyard. We became the only multicultural group in prison, and we started doing plays that that first the guys were skeptical about our fellow prisoners, but then that they demanded, "When are you guys doing another play?" And I, I and I saw the power of the creative arts, the possibilities of the power of the creative arts, the creative arts for social change. And decided there yeah, that this is what I wanted to do with my life. And that's, that when, and that's when you started to decide, or you decided to go get your college uh, degrees. Is, was that what catapulted you, or were you doing? I was that? in. I was in college already. I was in college, and I was, um, and and I got degrees in in psychology and sociology. And I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. I thought I could come out and um, that that I would get my doctorate. And um, I was also interested in holistic healing. I was going to study acupuncture, and I was going to be the person that you came to see and i was going to be like you know um uh here you know um take two saint john ward pills and call me in the morning and <laughs> and then with the powell theater i said jamal you could do this and and and, and uh you know get your phd and uh, mess with one person's head at a time or <laughs> right you could keep doing this theater and this film stuff and that's with a whole bunch of people at once. Well, and, and I decided, yeah, I wanted that to be the journey. So, I mean, you had, a, you had an incredibly productive prison life. I mean, multiple degrees. It, I mean, you know, I don't want to make it sound too light because, you know, doing time can't be easy. I can't even imagine. But, you know, you were remarkably productive. And it was a, I mean, when you look back on it, you, you must at least have some pretty strong positive feelings about that time or, or no. It, no, I, I do. I, in fact, Mr. Cody, who was the same guy who came up to me, old, uh, you know, older gangster guy who came up and, you know, was the first person that, that said, man, if you're doing them plays, you got to do something for Black History Month, uh, gave me um, the, um, great advice when I first came on the big yard at Leavenworth, and it's advice not only for prison but for life. And he said, young blood, he said, you could serve this here time or you could let this here time serve you. Um, and, and, and there's this other great quote from, from Malcolm when he says, you know, the penitentiary has been the university for many a black man and, and we can expand that to say for many a prisoner. And so, yeah, I, I, I decided to take every moment and to learn as much as I could and then to create as much as I could because I wanted to be, I, I always said to myself, if I survive this, because I realized that, you know, I was still, I was still political. I was still organizing. I was still... Um, a real thorn in the side of the guards. I couldn't walk down the hallway and see, 
you know, a prisoner being brutalized or go out disrespecting somebody without getting into to the middle of it. That didn't have fights with other prisoners, but always wound up in the hole for, you know, getting involved. And so there was a real chance that I would not come out alive. But I said, if I did come out alive, I wanted to come out with, uh, with the ability to, to really try to make a difference in this time using, using arts and education. Um, so it's the university. It's a place where I found um, uh, what became the direction of my life and, and what's, been, what's been true for the 25 years that I've been home for prison. Well, yeah, and, you're now, and you are now um, the chair of the film uh, what was it? The film division or the film school at Columbia? Yeah, the, the graduate film program at Columbia. I'm a professor there. There is. Uh, I, I just finished serving. Um, the it's a rotation, so I just finished uh, serving uh, uh, serving as chair for five years, uh, and now am um, uh, am uh, on sabbatical, and and I'm a full professor. And it's pretty amazing that, um, and I've, so I've been on faculty at Columbia for 14 years and served in various capacities. And how did, how did you get the job? How did you get the job? Just I'm curious, like coming out of Leavenworth. I mean, it, you know, how do you how did you get it? <laughs> well, I worked. You know, I, I first came out and started um, um, working. My first job was working as a paralegal with a lot of former. Uh, not former, but a lot of lawyers who had been lawyers for the Panthers. And so I studied a little bit of law in prison, and they gave me a job working. And then I'd alternate between that and being a laborer because, you know, sometimes they would, uh, that would be slow. And then I got, and then a friend named Tony Rogers, who had been a Panther but was working at City College, got me a job interview at a community college in New York, a place called Toro College. And, um, um, he took me to breakfast when I first came out, and he says, and I told him I'm looking for a job. He says, I want you to go interview as a as a as a counselor at this college that just opened a campus in Harlem. And I said, Tony, I have a record. And he said, But didn't you earn a degree? I said, Yes, two of them. He said, Well, do me a favor and um, just go do the interview. And um, <clears throat> Bobby Seale had told me that when he came out of prison, whenever he got a job, the FBI would show up the next day and scare the people. They would be like, do you realize who you just hired? This is Bobby Seale, founder of the Black Panther Party. So I decided on my resume that I would just get it out the way. So under additional experience, <laughs> right? <laughs> I had Black Panther Party in prison under additional experience. And I made it through the first round of, of interviews, and I'm sitting with the dean of the college, who's a, who's a uh, was a white guy in his 50s, uh, uh, very studious with the vest and with the tie and with bifocal glasses, and uh, Steve Adolphus. And, he's, and of course, he zeroes right in on, on my resume. And he said, you spent time in prison. And, and then I said, yes, and I was uh, a drug counselor at Narco Infinity Place and director of Henry Street Settlement Day Camp. And then he goes to the next thing on the resume. He says, and you were really in the Black Panther Party. And I said, yes, and I graduated from <laughs> University of Kansas, uh, you know, summa cum laude. And then he said, so you really understand this community. He said, you would really get out and talk to the people about our programs and go into the projects and deal with it. And then I found out that he liked it, and I was like, yeah, I was close to Bobby, and I helped organize the breakfast program. And it turned out that when Professor Adolphus um, was, uh, 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 was, uh, was teaching, 
that he used Soul on Ice as one of his textbooks. And when he was a vice chancellor, uh, when he worked for the New York State uh, Board, Board of Regents, he helped introduce college programs into prison. So, so that's that was my um, I started getting into uh, higher education, and then um, I got to Columbia. I went to Sundance. Along the way, now I'm starting to write screenplays and make educational films, and I got accepted to the Sundance Directing Lab. And uh, and one of the people that I met, one of my mentors in the directing lab, is uh, James Seamus, um, who is a professor at Columbia University and a wonderful producer and writer and runs a company now called Focus Features. Sure, yeah. He's uh, Ang Lee. Uh, Isn't he partner with Ang Lee? He's, he's partners with Ang Lee. And James uh, told the chair of Columbia about me, and they were looking for someone to teach screenwriting. And I have now been teaching... As in uh, working at Turo College and teaching some other places as an adjunct, and I went in for an interview, and it turns out that the person who was the chair at that time was a man named Lewis Cole, who I knew from the '60s because he was one of the leaders of SDS. Uh, so we knew each other from our from our radical student days, and uh, I I thought I would be there teaching one course for one semester. Um, and uh, Lewis called me in at the end of it. He said, Jamal, I want to talk to you about this teaching. I was like, they're going to boot me out. I was horrible. Um, <laughs> and he invited me to to apply full-time. So here I am 14 years later. It's so funny because I used to stand, when the students would take the uh, the campus over in the late 60s and the early 70s at Columbia, and Columbia was one of the hotbeds. You know, it would be Berkeley and Columbia. Something would happen and students would shut the campus down. And they'd be protesting the war in Vietnam, and students would be on strike, and there'd be thousands of people, and they'd open it up so there'd be community groups there. And there's a big statue in front of, uh, in the center of campus, a big bronze statue, alma mater. Woman, alma mater sitting on a, in a bronze chair, and we would blindfold her with the North Vietnamese flag, and there'd be banners, and everyone would give speeches, and the Panthers would be, you know, called on last. We'd be like, you know, the the, the show closes, right? And they'd bring me up as one of the Panther 21, and I know my job is to kind of take the crowd over the top. So I'd grab the little bullhorn microphone, and I would say, Brothers and sisters, if Columbia University doesn't recognize that the war in Vietnam is a war of capitalist exploitation, had to have that 60s cadence. Oh, of course, yeah. I was going to say, you're bringing, <laughs> the you're bringing me there. City, yeah, that's exactly right. And that the United States pig military is occupying Vietnam the way the New York City pig department is occupying Harlem and trying to occupy this campus then you have a duty, brothers and sisters, to do more to take this college campus over today. You've got to burn the damn place down. And <laughs> start screaming. So fast forward 40 years later, I'm walking uh, uh, across campus. I have a 10 o'clock class and about five minutes to get there. It's chilly, so there's not students hanging out, you know, on the uh, on college walk. And I hear, Psst, and I look around, and there's no one there. None of my colleagues, none of my students. I take another step and I hear, Psst. and I stop and I look, and it's the bronze statue of alma mater. <laughs> and she looks at me and she goes, oh, it's Professor Joseph now. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you wanted to burn the damn place down. I was going to say, times have changed, you know? <laughs> right. Well, Jamal, uh, you know, I have just a couple minutes left, but before uh, I let you go, I wanted to talk, you know, I'm going to kind of throw three questions at you in one, but... Um, you know, uh, you, you were, uh, Tupac Shakur's godfather and, you know, you're now at a place in your life where you've written this memoir and you're looking back and, uh, you know, with, with all this kind of, uh, life experience and perspective. And I'm curious to know, 
you know, about the, how the, you know, with that experience in mind and with the work that you do with young people, uh, you know, what have you learned and, you know, what would you say to yourself at 15 now, if you could give yourself advice, you know, like what, like where, where is your brain, you know, where's your mind with regard to all this now? And, and, um, well, I'm, I'm lucky in that I get to, I, I probably get to, to talk to myself at 15, um, over and over again, because I'm really fortunate that I've been mentoring and doing creative work and activism work with young people for about 20 years now. First, with the, at a place called the City Kids Foundation, and then, um, uh, and then uh, 14 years ago, we we started an organization. My wife and uh, Joyce, uh, uh, my producing partner Rosa Rivers, and myself started a group called Impact Repertory Theater, where we try to do activism and the creative arts. So the young people are creating around issues that are important to them. And you also, I should, I should mention that you, you were nominated for an Academy Award. I mean, that, that needs to be said, right? That, that needs to be said, and that's, that's crazy uh, when you think of it, that uh, you know, one could be standing in court, you know, facing life, and then uh, and then standing on the stage of the Oscars. It's it, it was crazy, but but that I, I always maintain that's Impact's nomination. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I was just one of the three people that they allowed to stand on stage to be official. But the biggest joy was that, and how this came about very quickly is that we Impact creates the young people create music and dance and drama, phenomenal poetry and choreography and music based upon their life experiences. And we got cast uh, thanks to a dear friend named James, Shane, uh, uh, named Jim, James Hart, Jim Hart, who's a screenwriter. Um, we got cast in a film called August Rush. Uh, Richard Lewis produced this, Kirsten Sheridan directed it, and we played the gospel choir. We asked the director, could we write the song that we were singing? And she said, of course. She had come to a lot of rehearsals and know that the kids are wonderful songwriters. And we wrote a song called Raise It Up that got nominated for an Oscar. I had this amazing experience of being able to take 30 young people from Harlem, uh, half of them who had never been on a plane before to perform um, at the uh, 2008 Academy Awards. But what I'm able to say to the young people and therefore to myself was that here's the thing that, that, that I learned that was at the heart of all of the struggles that I have been part of and the people who mentored me. It was, it was, it was, in, in my mother who did what she could to, to get me to a safe place, um, to my adopted grandparents, to Trinity Baptist Church, to the NAACP, to the Black Panther Party, to the theater company that I started in Leavenworth, to the young people, that they had one thing in common. And if you ask anybody in the Black Panther Party, what's the one, what was the real thing that motivated you to do what you did? Don't talk about the 10-point program or any of the, uh, all those books you read or the ideology of the Black Panther Party. What's the one thing? And they will all answer the question this way. We were taught to have an undying love for the people. We were taught to serve the people. Now, I remember being in the Panther office when I first walked in and seeing this poster of Che Guevara with the quote, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, let me say that revolutionaries are guided by great feelings of love. Um... And so the Panthers uh, used shotguns and law books because they thought those were the weapons of social change. Uh, Bobby Seale, who founded the Black Panther Party, said if he was starting the Panther Party today, Panthers would be on the streets. 
but they'd be carrying video cameras and laptop computers because these are the weapons of social change. Some of the problems are the same. The weapons have changed, but the constant, the thing that really motivates you and the thing that makes us human is understanding our love for each other and being motivated out of love. As a young panther, it's what made you get up at 5 o'clock in the morning when it was freezing um, to go across town to cook breakfast for 50 kids that weren't your kids, to escort old ladies home that weren't your grandmothers, and as you were exhausted after working 18 hours to get off the bus when you saw a cop having someone against the wall and stand between that, that cop's drawn gun and that person saying, Officer, what are you doing here? What are you doing to this person? To someone that you don't know, but you understand that you're connected to is love. And to my young people at Impact, I said, that's what makes you get come here on a Saturday when you could be sleeping in, playing video games, to do community service, to create its love. And whatever you do, if you let that love for, you, for community and for humanity be your guide, you'll make the right choice. Wow. 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 I, you know, that, uh, that's amazing. And, uh, it's like, it's, that's like the perfect place to end. But before I let you go, because I mentioned it already, and I know our listeners will want to, uh, hear at least a little bit about it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Tupac? I mean, he was your, your godson, correct? Yes. Afeni Shakur was my big sister in the Black Panther Party. And, and I think that I learned probably more about the path to manhood and how to be a man from Afeni than from anyone else, than from any of the men, um, in terms of how someone conducts himself as a man. And, and, and it comes out of what I just talked about, out of respect and about of love. And Tupac was her son. So I knew Pac from the time that he was born, and because of Fanny and I remained close through the years and still remain very, very close, um, had a chance to see Tupac grow uh, to work with him, to, to be one of his karate teachers and mentors before he left New York. And then after I got out of prison, to reconnect with him, just as he was starting to um, uh, to have success, you know, as a, as a singer and as a rapper and as an actor, brilliant young actor, he was acting before he started doing music and spent a lot of time with Tupac. I got a, got a chance to spend a lot of time with Tupac. He was an amazing... Uh, young man. I, I, I wrote a book um, called Tupac Legacy uh, that came out, and, and, and there's this incident that happened after Tupac got shot the first time. And, and, and by the way, we would, we would get into it. Um, when, he, when he would be in New York, uh, I'd go see him on the set or sometimes go by his hotel room, and I would always get into it about this thing called thug life. And I would be like, Tupac, what is thug life? You know, Malcolm X was a thug. And then he became self-educated in prison. He moved from there to being a leader and then a revolutionary. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale were thugs. And then they got educated and they become revolutionaries. Why are you kind of headed the other way? And he was like, well, Uncle Jamal, i got to keep it real with the folks that keep it real with me. And we'd we, we battle about this. And then, um, and, and the night that he got shot, um, I was at the hospital. And, um, and that's the night that he famously left the hospital because he didn't feel safe. And I'm one of the people that when he decided he didn't want to stay there, they helped get him out of the hospital and took him to a safe place. Um, but he was convicted of, uh, he was living a charge with rape, but, but was acquitted of that, but got convicted of, uh, of misconduct, sexual misconduct. He was in the prison ward at Bellevue, and I went to see him. And I was able to use my paralegal credentials to, to see him one-on-one -on -one, uh, in the attorney room. And he hugs me and he says, Uncle Jamal, he says, before you start, 
He says, I want to tell you a story. And he says, before I start, <laughs> you because know, we're going to go into it. He says, but no, let me tell you a story. He said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the prison ward, and a, another young prisoner is in there because he's getting an operation. He sees me, and he goes crazy. He goes, Tupac, Tupac, you're my hero, you're my hero. And Tupac said, time out, why am I your hero? And he said, oh, come on, Pac, don't be playing. You got all the women, you get all the money, you shot at the police. And he said, time out. If that's why I'm your hero, then I don't need to be anybody's hero. He said, Uncle Jamal, and I realized that thug life is dead. He says, and that I'm going to change, you know, uh, he says, and that we have to start building community centers and we have to start, you know, um, uh, educating the youth and that the art needs to move a certain way. I said, Pac, I'm so happy to say that. I said, but what's different now than the other times that we, that we bumped heads? And he says, you know, first of all, I, I realized that, that, that if I'm going to die, um, if it's going to be like Tony Montana from Scarface or like Malcolm X, then I want to be like Malcolm X. Hmm. He says, he says, and second of all, he says, a lot of, a lot of days, he says, if I wasn't smoking something, I was drinking something. If I wasn't drinking something, I was smoking something. He says, but I'm clear now. He says, and I realize that I have to deal with my sobriety one day at a time. And I have to use this celebrity in order to, uh, in order to organize. Um, and so sadly, when Tupac first came out, there was that East Coast, West Coast riff, and there was all of that bad feeling that happened. But the thing that I like to remind people of is that Tupac had done his best to try to make peace with those rappers and with those people that he was having a fight with, and that he had started this One Nation project, and that he had started designing what was going to be these community centers and these youth programs all across the country, and he had made that change and was moving into that direction when he got killed. Um, he's one of these great lights that um, left us so much music and so much to think about, and uh, we can only wonder what would happen if that light wasn't extinguished um, too soon. Yeah, well, it's a great tragedy, and uh, you know, I could go on talking to you forever, but uh, you know, I just uh, I thank you for the time, and I wish you uh, all the best with Panther Baby and with all of your various uh, you know creative and educational projects. Thank you so much. This was. It was great. It was like just uh, kind of hanging out in the living room with you just talking. It was wonderful. Thank you. All right. All right. Take care. Take care. All right, everybody. That's it. That's the show. That's Jamal Joseph. The book, once again, is called Panther Baby. It's an amazing story, and it is publishing uh, on February 7th, 2012. And it's uh, from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon. And uh, otherwise, if you want to keep up with all the latest check out the Algonquin blog, and the web address is algonquinbooksblog.com. Uh, Panther Baby, it's the December selection for the TMB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. So for club members, hope you enjoyed that, hope you read the book, and uh, hope you enjoyed the benefit of being in the club. If you're listening and you want to be a part of the book club yourself, it's a great thing to do. Just go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar. For only $9.99 a month, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. That's, uh, that's less than the cost of a book. And uh, I interview all of the book club authors on this show so you can read the book and then listen to, uh, listen to me in conversation with them. And then the added bonus is that it does help keep the podcast going. It helps the cause. So if you're interested and you can swing it, please do that. It's a good thing to do. It's good for your brain. Uh, orders of business. This show has a website, otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. Uh, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, 
Uh, if you want to send me a long hyperanalytical email, by all means, fire away. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, I will understand your plight, and I will try to respond as promptly as possible. But if I don't uh, get back to you for a few days, please don't freak out. Uh, oh, and speaking of email, if you want to get my weekly email newsletter, uh, it goes out every Monday morning. Just go to the Nervous Breakdown and drop your email address in the little field at the top right, and uh, I'll send you an email once a week, just once a week. It has lots of photos, uh, lots of pictures, and uh, also a cartoon from Ted McCagg, who's really funny. So... Uh, what else? Closing thoughts, email, overanalyzing, reconciling one's desires and ambitions uh, with basic human decency, stuff like that. Uh, it's no small thing. You know, I don't think it's a small thing. And uh, I think it's worth thinking about. It's a tough one. It's, uh, you know, what do I recommend? I think I recommend postcards. Postcards are underrated. I think regular mail is the most underrated form of entertainment in the world. And, uh, you know, if, if you're having trouble with email and you want to make somebody's day a little bit better, or you just want to, uh, you know, uh, throw a curveball, mail somebody a postcard. It's like an old school text message and it doesn't happen nearly enough anymore in the digital age as we, uh, careen into the future. And, uh, I guess speaking of the future, it's almost the new year. And this, believe it or not, is the last episode of other people in 2011. The first three months of the show are now in the books and, uh, it seems like, uh, longer in some ways, but it, at the same time it has gone fast. And, uh, that's, that's sort of the, uh, the paradox of life, you know, it takes forever, but it goes really fast. So thank you guys so much for listening here in the early going as this thing gets off the ground. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for rating and reviewing the show on iTunes, all of that stuff. I appreciate it so much. Have a great new year, have fun on new year's Eve. And, uh, you know, if you can't think of anything to do, but you want to do something and you really want to go out and do something, here's my suggestion. Go see live music anywhere any kind, just go to a show, make a plan, make it happen. Uh, it's foolproof. It'll be fun. People always forget about that. And, uh, you know, if you don't have any plans, that's okay too. You know, if you don't want to do anything, that's fine. It's not like you have to do something, you know, because ultimately it is arbitrary. It is just another day. It's just another rotation of the earth around the sun. And, uh, you know, it keeps happening. It never stops. So don't feel any big pressure and whatever you do, don't overanalyze it. You got to stop thinking about what you're thinking about.